Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. For more information, be sure to visit us at cbctaylorville.com. Listen now as Pastor Chad delivers this week's message. Who in here has a life that's been changed by Jesus? Anyone? Anyone? Come on, give the Lord your praise. Let the people of God say so. If God has done a work in your life, make sure that not just in this moment or moments like these, that you continue to pour your heart out to God and give Him thanks for what He has done in and through your life and what He continues to do. Amen? Hey, I want to I begin this morning with a story. There's some credibility, but that's okay. You love me, right? Do you love me? You love me? Why are you laughing? Do you love me? All right, you're making me nervous. You love me. Hey, so when I was, whenever I was in high school, I was, uh, I was a teenager who wanted to have a car, and one of the prerequisites for me having a car is I had to have a jobby job. That was kind of the deal. Amen. Amen to that, anyone? It's like it was a deal. So it's like, hey, if you want to have a car, that's awesome. You better have a job to provide for that car. So I did what, you know, a struggling 16-year-old would do in that moment. I went and got a job at McDonald's, and I was flipping those burgers. Yeah, I did it for years. I did it all through high school. And so I had th- these opportunities that were presented to me. Again, I, it's, pro- it's a little embarrassing, and that's okay. But because, you know, you told me you love me. Some of you even said it, and you meant it. Um, so we're good. And uh, so whenever I was in high school, I-, I worked on the grill and flipping burgers. Sometimes I wanted a break from the grill. You know what I mean? I wanted a little change of pace. So I had this opportunity to be in some of the local parades. And so that's kind of a neat thing, right, to be in a parade who, who would like that, sit in the back of a convertible, like waving? Anyone? I mean, that's a pretty cool thing, right? My, my experience was a little bit different because I had to wear the Hamburglar suit when I did it. Uh, so it was a little different than maybe what you're dreaming of. I wasn't like a pageant person, right? Because that was obviously, obviously that's not the case. But I, I was the Hamburglar, and, uh, and I, I say this with a level of pride, and I was getting paid, so it was worth it. And so I went to all these, all these parades. And what's amazing about a parade is this. Like, my experience on the back of a convertible, like, being anonymous was great because I was 16, right? And 17 and then 18 whenever I was doing this, or 17 and 18 when I was doing this. So, so it was a big deal for me. It was like I'm hidden between this huge suit with a gigantic head. I mean, if you're just dying to know what the Hamburglar will look like, you have permission right now. Look at your phone. Google Hamburglar. It was embarrassing. I had the full suit and the whole nine yards. My experience was very embarrassing. But if you've ever been to a parade or been in a parade, you know it's different too. Because my experience in the back of the car is completely different than the mom and dad's experience who are trying to keep their kids from running out and tackling the other kids for candy, right? And it's certainly different than the kids' perspective where they're just like hungry, hungry hippo, all of the candy they can have. And they want to eat it all right now, just in case something may happen and they lose it, right? So in those moments, you know that things are different, depends upon really the person and the situation. Let me give you another example of this. Who's ever been to a restaurant, and you're sitting at a table, and then all of a sudden, all the employees go around, and they start cheering because it's somebody's birthday, and they're yelling, and they're all happy. And if it's a Mexican restaurant, they put that big, huge sombrero on your head. Everybody knows exactly whose birthday it is, right? Who was happy to be the table over and not have that happen to them? Raise your hand if just be honest. Yes. But for the person who's wearing the sombrero, it's a completely different experience, is it not? 
And sometimes it's even fun, and then sometimes it's not so fun, and it's just really embarrassing. You see, we can be in the same space and have different experiences even within the same space that we're in. We can. Like, we can all be together, and yet we can all gather something different, or we can experience life and experience circumstances vastly different than the person next to us. And the same thing is even true of gatherings like this. We can come into this place, and I realize that we all have lives outside of here, and we can bring that life into here, and we can just, just get to the place where we just kind of struggle, and then we just barely get to church. I get it. Some people are like that, and I just want to say welcome to church today. Welcome to Calvary. We're so glad you're here. And then there are others. You're spiritually soaring, and you're like, you just floated. You didn't even, you, did, you just got out of your car, and you floated in here like angelic. Like, we want your life, by the way. We want that life. It's like some people are like that, and yet what we all come to understand is we can be here and experience things differently. I'll say it like this. Even in moments where it seems like they're emotional moments and, and we're all revved up and we're all excited, you can, you can feel different than the person who's sitting next to you, although you're in the same room, you're hearing the same thing, you're singing the same songs, and you're sitting in the same seats. It's because of this. You can get swept up into emotional moments with God without having a true movement in your heart towards God. You can get all caught up in all the emotional things. You can get all caught up in the wave of emotion that's happening in the room. Or, and then you can also be the person in the room where you just simply feel detached from everything else that's going on in the room. And we all experience this in one way or the other. This is a similar dynamic that's happening today in this passage as we're talking about Palm Sunday. And as Jesus is, we're, we're going to read and study about when Jesus is entering into the city, there are some people who are shouting praises and there are people throwing palm fronds down and he's just entering into the city and there's this amazing experience, but there are people outside of that experience who just want to kill him. And they aren't the ones shouting his name and saying, Hallelujah, the Messiah has come. Instead, they're waiting moment by moment by moment, waiting for the perfect opportunity to take his life. So they are no different than us, being in the same space, feeling things in a different way. But here's what I want for you. I don't ever want you to get so caught up in the emotional moments of what we sing and how I preach and what's being taught or how you feel in the moment and miss God. Because we can get caught up in all those things and miss what God is doing in the room, what, miss what God is doing and wanting to do in your life. So before we pause and I, and I give you some of the background information that's so pertinent for you to understand the, the tension that, that resides in the middle of this, this ultimate parade that Jesus is about to start and embark into. I don't want us to just jump into all of that background without us pausing for a moment to ask God, say, God, help me to be present right here and now. Help me not to get swept up in the emotions of the day and miss you, the true prize, every day. So would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for... Uh, just knowing that the story that we're going to read today is true. Knowing that you are indeed God. 
and that you reside high on the throne, and yet you came near to us. You felt what we feel. You dealt with people in the way that we deal with people. You saw pain and suffering like we see pain and suffering. You heard of wars and rumors of wars like we hear of rumors of wars and we know of wars. So Jesus, in this moment, help us to engage and be present so we don't get swept up in the emotional moment and miss you in this moment. And Lord Jesus, I thank you for loving us first. Loving us when we were the most unlovable. Loving us when we didn't even love ourselves. Loving us when we were so caught in our sin and so bound to our shame. But you cut us free. And I thank you for it, Jesus. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, for us to understand the passage that we're going to get into, and I, I welcome you to go into Luke 19. Luke 19 is where we're going to start, reading in verse 28. And as we jump into this, this passage, it's, it's very important for us to understand what has led up to this moment. Not only has Jesus has taught for the last three years up to this and, and his public ministry, and he, not only did he have a prominent place in the community, not only did, did, did people have uh, just eyes to see him and they were drawn to him, but way before that, there were some things that happened that led into the tension of this moment. In our last series, we, we talked about you know, the Catalyst series. We spent several weeks unpacking the, the events of what happened during the, the Babylonian time period and then also the Persian captivity. This about 500 years before the birth of Jesus. Well, what happened next and in, in what the sequence that followed that sets the tension for what we're going to read about in Luke 19. Because over the next couple of hundred years, the Persians would actually fall to the Syrians. And their way of governing was different than the Persians. So as the, as the, the Persians would fall to the Syrians... Then that caused a big upheaval in Judea and in Jerusalem. So now everything is, is kind of strung about. And, and now this guy by the name of Antiochus, he, he went into Jerusalem and he pillaged Jerusalem. Killing many, many numbers of men, women, and children. He had barged right into the temple and he took some of the sacred objects and the offerings. And he took them for himself and he pillaged everyone. He pillaged everything that he could. So while the, the Persians had more of a, a mild way of governing and controlling this group, the Syrians did not. He bars right in where he shouldn't have, have gone, and he took that, took it over. He took whatever he wanted. There was a family in the, this is the intertestamental period. This is the 400 years between the Old Testament and New Testament. There was this family. It was the Maccabee family, also known as the Hasmonean dynasty in case you nerd out on Bible things like I do. But the Maccabean family got caught up in this too because one of the people in the family actually had had enough. And although he died, he passed that legacy on to his kids. And his kids would actually bring about a whole bit of upheaval once again. They, they revolted against the series. They revolted against what was happening in their day. They revolted and they said, this should not be. 
This caused much excitement in Judea and Jerusalem because people thought this is exactly what we need. So much so that they gave one of the Maccabean sons by the name of Simon just an unprecedented amount of religious, military, and political power and authority. Unprecedented. This was, a, this, this was more power than what the Bible was supposed to be giving someone of his position. The Old Testament is what I'm speaking of. And it's even more power and authority that, that would be outside of any of the Jewish practices of the day. But what they loved about, about Simon is he came in as just this great dominating power. Like, finally, we have somebody to step up against our enemies. This eventually would get the attention of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire would sweep across the land and stomp out the dynasty. So now the people of God were stuck right where they were before. And now the Romans, with their heinous way of living and their moral corruption, they had a completely different way of holding, on, hold, holding power over people. This becomes important for us because... When Jesus came onto the stage, people expected Jesus to be different than what he was. And what we're going to read about this morning is a way that the people are caught up in this moment. And it's Jesus, there's so much tension in this day. Because people are thinking, finally, now maybe Jesus is the one. He, if he is the Messiah, he's going to be the one who has the military power. He's the one who's going to be the one who's in political power. He's the one who brings the spiritual power. And finally, we'll be free people. They all have this expectation of what Jesus is going to be like. And they were also captured by Jesus' teachings. Like, for instance... In Luke 19, verse 11, this is not in the main passage, by the way. This is just extra. This is lead-in to know what's going on as well. It says this in verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. This is talking about Jesus. Because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. They're like, Jesus had talked about this kingdom. It talked about this reign of, of a king. And they're like, He's, it's finally going to happen. It's finally going to happen. It's finally going to happen. Now our main passage. <clears throat> Verse 28, Luke 19 says this. After Jesus had said this in a parable, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethage, Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, tell him, the Lord needs it. Verse 32. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as they had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And he went along. People spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. 
Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus said this, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within the walls, and they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus is prophesying about something that would happen just a few decades later, which we will talk about in a moment or two. But notice back as this passage began in verse 28. After Jesus had set this miracle and knowing what the expectation was from the people that the kingdom of God is coming, knowing that the tension is just, it's just all over that area because of, the, because of the power of the Roman Empire impressing upon the people, there's a big expectation that peace is going to be coming, but they thought that the peace was come, going to come through war because that's all they had known. That's all they had seen. That's what the Maccabean family, that's what the revolt was about. So that was what the expectation was. And what Jesus would show them is completely different. And he does not meet their expectation. Notice what Jesus said in verse 30. He says, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. I love how, how Jesus in this moment just completely, he's, he's, he's very prophetic in everything that he says and everything that he does. He's God. He knows the past. He knows the present. He knows the future. Amen? And he knows your future. Amen? And so in this moment, he's giving the instruction to the disciples, telling them exactly where to go because he knows that there's going to be a cult there. He knows there's going to be people there, and he knows exactly where this is leading. None of this is catching Jesus off guard. Notice that it was a cult that no one had ridden, and his instruction is untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. The Lord needs it. That's an interesting phrase. In this passage, I'm going to break this down in two different ways to help us kind of understand what's happening. The first thing that we're going to break down is the kingship of Jesus. The kingship of Jesus. So we're going to break it down, in, again, in two different ways. In the first ways, we're going to break it down in a sense to show the kingship of Jesus. Notice that Jesus said the Lord needs it. That was the instruction, and also that was what they did. They, they did what they were instructed to do. The Lord needs it. That word from verse 31, Lord, is the, is the Greek word kurios, meaning the Messiah. So when Jesus is called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, it means that in the end, all of the other rulers are, are going to be conquered. All the other rulers will be abolished. All of the other rule, rulers will be overthrown, that he is the King of Kings. He, don't, he doesn't just have some authority. He has all authority. 
He's not limited in his power. He has unlimited power. And he even has power over a cult that, was, that had never been written. In other words, it had never been broken. And he even shows his power over creation in this, in this passage. We just glossed over it. But there's so much more. You see, Roman emperors, they would pridefully return from a bloody war on a horse. And an entourage of warriors and shackled prisoners and the trophies of war. And what Jesus does is completely different than what the Romans would have done. Jesus, being the king of kings, he returns to Jerusalem on a donkey as a sign of peace, not war. Because indeed, he is the prince of peace. So he comes as a sign of peace, not war, humility, not pride. He didn't enter into town to say, hey, look at me and look what all the things that I've done and look at all my trophies from war. Instead, he came in on the most humble of creature, a young donkey, just a colt, and he just, he just, uh, just comes into this city in the most humble of ways. And yet notice, even his humility got everyone's attention. Oh, isn't it true that so many times we need to think that to get other people's attention, we need to show out in more pride than humility? But what if the reverse is actually true, that the more humble we become in Jesus' name, that, actually, that we would actually have a greater standing in our society? Verse 36, as we move on in this passage, it says, As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Why do we call it Palm Sunday? Great question. This, this event in time is so important that it's actually listed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's so important that it's listed in all of them. But all of the gospel writers, they write and, and they show significance in their own little way. That God inspired the writing of Holy Scripture through a person's, the way of their writing that God through, again, just the inspired, infallible Word of God, through the person, conveyed the message of Jesus in a unique way to say something about Jesus. Luke is a medical doctor. He was not one of the original apostles. He was a medical doctor who was sent with the task of becoming a historian. His work was funded by a guy by the name of Theophilus. That's an epic name, Theophilus. And I believe that name means lover of God. But he was, even in his writing, you see that God just inspired all these things for him to put aside his medical practice and to go do all this research and background research to put together this gospel. In verse 36, it says that people spread out their cloaks on the road. But in John's account, in John 12, 13, he says that there was also cloaks, jackets, if you will, that were put down just as a sign of respect over Jesus but in, in John's passage, it actually says that there were cloaks and there were palm leaves, palm branches specifically. They were put down, again, to just cover the ground as Jesus was coming in on this, this ultimate parade. You have to understand what was going on in that time, too. This is Passover week. This is the beginning of Passover week. So there would be, in the city of Jerusalem, there would be tens of thousands normally, but some historians believe there could be millions of people in Jerusalem. So it's such an influx of people. In upwards of estimated two to three million people 
all the extra millions of people inside the city of Jerusalem. So there's a lot that's going on. No, the, the gospel writer didn't go through the, the minutia to say, well, there was this many people lined up on the road when Jesus was coming through. Because the, the attention isn't on the people. The attention is supposed to be on Jesus. But notice that even in the midst of this, the people, whatever number of people, they all respond. In Matthew's account, in Matthew 21, verse 10, it said, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. The whole city was stirred. So now, upwards of hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people are stirred. They're stirred because there's something going on. Because they had either seen or they'd heard of what Jesus had, had, had been teaching or seen what Jesus had been doing. Or maybe they had seen his miracles or heard of his miracles. And again, they're all longing for a time of peace, but they think that the peace is actually going to come through war. But ultimate peace with God would come through a cross. This they didn't expect. <coughs> this they didn't expect at all. Even the Roman branch, or the, the, the palm branch, was a, a symbol that the Romans would use. They would use it just by showing a reward for champions of the games or just as a way of celebrating military victories. And yet, so now the, the palm branch is being down. It's celebrating a victory. It's like all of these things are, it's Jesus is just so humble and coming into the city. And people are responding in humility. People are responding in joy. People are responding by tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people praising God for what could be, what must be. And eventually, what would be? Timothy Keller, he said this of this event, talking about Jesus particularly. He said, in Jesus we find infinite majesty, yet complete humility. Perfect justice, yet boundless grace. Absolute sovereignty, yet utter submission. All sufficiency in himself, yet entire trust and dependence on God. We cannot stress this day in history enough. In Luke 19:37 we see how the people respond to Jesus's majesty and humility and justice and grace and sovereignty and submission, his all-sufficiency and yet dependence and trust on God. It says when he came near the place where the road goes, the, goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Can you hear it? Can you feel it? What was happening on this day? This wasn't just another day. This ultimately was a day of, of such celebration and people shouting that to even be in proximity of it, you would have felt the wave of emotion and just the, the sense that God was up to doing something incredible. Of course, all of this was prophesied by Zechariah in Zechariah 9.9, 500 years before this day. 
And this is what Zechariah wrote, he himself under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. 500 years before this day, Zechariah wrote about this as God wanted him to. So let's get into the the second half and let's talk about Jesus' way of ruling. Jesus' way of ruling. I've already told you that the donkey was a was the amount a, a man on a donkey was a sign of it was a sign of peace also. So that had some significance about how Jesus was entering into town. Just a, a donkey itself was different than a horse. It was showing, in a, in a sense, peace, or it could also show something about a priestly aspect of which Jesus would fulfill. You see, Zechariah's prophecy saw that the Messiah, that being Jesus, that he was the Prince of Peace. You see, that's one of the great aspects and attributes of Almighty God. He is a Prince of Peace. What I know for sure is some of your lives are not in a sense of peace right now. What I can guarantee you that some of your lives are actually chaos right now. And we can come in and we can put smiles on our face, and yet there's going to be a reality outside these walls where the wave of emotion that happens in this room will wane, and you need something more significant than just gathering together to soak up these emotions. You need Jesus. Because he's the one who can give a sense of peace and calm and shalom even in the middle of life's storms. Even in the middle of chaos that you are bringing on yourself, he can help you walk through that and bring peace and then bring correction where there's corruption. This is what Jesus wants to do in your life. I I believe it with my whole heart. His way of ruling is it's not just in, in some way where he rules from heaven where he doesn't care what happens on earth. He deeply cares about what's happening on earth. He deeply cares about what's going on in your life. He deeply cares about your finances. He deeply cares about your marriage. He deeply cares about your health. He deeply cares about your kids. He deeply cares about your future. He deeply cares about your past. And he wants to reconcile all those things back to himself. And he wants to reconcile you to himself. Notice in this passage, you you see specifically his, his way of ruling. You see it in his response when he enters the city. Notice what he did in verse 41, Luke 19. As he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over the city. So as the people are cheering, Jesus is weeping. Capture that. As the people are cheering, praise God, this is amazing. They're doing all this stuff, and it's just this ultimate parade, and Jesus is coming into town, and yet he catches a glimpse of the city, and because he sees the city for what it truly is and what he does, it breaks his heart so much that he weeps over the city. That he weeps over the city. It makes me wonder 
how Jesus responds to our city. It makes me wonder how Jesus responds today to the lostness of the people in our city. It makes me wonder how how Jesus responds to the political corruption in our state and in our community. It makes me, it breaks my heart thinking how it breaks Jesus' heart because he cares deeply about all these things. And when Jesus, his way of ruling, he brings peace into somebody else's life, but not for a peace that just resides within them, that they just stay. Instead, that they have confidence to engage in the lost world, to share their faith with lost people, to engage in the aspects of, of communities that need to change. That the people of God wouldn't reside in little holy huddles, but instead they would gather together as a church united in a space like this, but they would be released and they would go out into into the lost areas and to reach lost people in our community. You see, when Jesus is weeping, he's looking at the condition, I believe, the condition of the people's hearts particularly. So he's weeping about what he sees You see, so why would Jesus have wept over that city? I love how one commentarian broke it down. He broke it down in this way. He said, if he looked ahead, and we see this being hinted to in this passage, because there's a prophecy at the end of this passage in verse 42. I'll read it to you again, and then I'll I'll get back to that. But it says, As Jesus approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it. Verse 42. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within the walls. They will not leave you, excuse me, they will not leave one stone on another because you do not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You see, if Jesus looked ahead, and what, this is, what Jesus is prophesying right now is what's going to happen in A.D. 66, just a couple decades later. In A.D. 66, the Jews would try to revolt against Roman rule. And that city would be demolished in A.D. 30. Jesus knew this. You see, if he, he looked ahead, one of the reasons why he's weeping, because if he looks ahead, he sees the city being demolished in A.D. 30 killing approximately 600,000 Jews. If he looked behind, he, he would have just seen the missed opportunities of everybody who had heard his messages and been all caught up emotionally in these moments, but they weren't changed. They hadn't repented. They had heard some things. They had seen some things, but their hearts weren't moved towards God. If he looked within the people, he saw spiritual blindness and he saw ignorance and he saw complacency. And if he looked around, all he saw was a lot of empty religious activities that were resulting in nothing. So how would Jesus respond to the condition of our city and our county and even our country? How would he respond? How would he respond? How would he respond? Would he care about the same things that we care about? Would he draw hard lines like we draw hard lines? Or would he take our hard line and kind of like take a holy eraser and be like, yeah, it's actually not that 
clear cut as you think it is. We could speculate all these things and we could talk about it and we'd probably bring out a lot of great points and things that would be true. But let me tell you the thing that I believe is wholly true. Jesus wept because of the condition of the people in the city. And Jesus would weep over the condition of the lostness in our city. That there are people who need Jesus Christ. That the people of God, like you and I, need to wake up and we need to look around. And we need to to wake up and we need to be praying for our lost neighbors. Instead of hiding from our lost neighbors, we need to go befriend our lost neighbors. Instead of hiding from that awkward person at work that we seek to avoid, instead, we need to take the posture of Jesus and we need to weep over that person's lostness and we need to have the the courage and we need to to ask God for the courage and and just the boldness to be able to go share just the, the hope of your salvation with that person. I think Jesus would weep over the condition of our families, the lost people in our families, the brokenness in our families. I think he would weep over that, and I think he would cause us to weep over these things too. If our hearts were going to be like Jesus' heart, that we would weep over the same things that he weeps over because our hearts are bent towards his heart. Oh, church, it's so easy to get caught up in all of the other things and miss the things that are not really the most important. It's so easy for us to get all on all sorts of tirades about how much we pay in taxes and what politician did this and how we should have had this and somebody else should be here and that person shouldn't be there and that person's not qualified. That person's all, we, we could lose so much time talking about that. But how about we just start praying for lost people? How about we stop just talking about, I wish the world would change, but instead we actually pray that that God would change us. Instead of waiting for revival to happen to somebody else, instead go to God in prayer to say, God, make revival happen in me. Because maybe what Jesus is weeping over is not just the city and those other people, maybe it's your life. Maybe it's decisions that you are making and you've been in a cycle where you're making the same bad decision over and over and over. And maybe that's the reason why you don't have peace. You see, Calvary is a church. It's an assembly of people gathered together as one for God, for the city, And for the nations. This is why we're here. Notice that what you see on the screen right now does not say Calvary is a church that exists for itself. As we take the posture of Jesus, looking at the way Jesus ruled, our hearts should be broken for the condition of our city. That lost people are going to hell and they're spending eternity separated from God. And not just within our city, but also all around the world. So we should realize we have skin in the game. It's more important than just sending money out to, to caring for missionaries. But instead, we should be praying for our missionaries. 
And we also should be missionaries in our community. You see, we do all this because Jesus deserves all glory, all praise, and all honor. And Jesus is king. But the city of Jerusalem that Jesus is weeping over is too small to contain his majesty. All nations are to be his. He's to be getting the glory and praise from all nations. And when there are nations of people and groups of people who are not living on fire for God, when they're living in sin and rebellion, they're robbing God of glory that is due him. See, now as we've we swept over this passage, we feel the, the weight. We've heard the shouts of the crowd because they thought that there was going to be a ruler who was coming in to this messianic ruler, prophesied hundreds of years before that. They're thinking that he's going to come in with all this military power. Instead, Jesus comes in humility. So we've heard the shouts. We've heard Jesus weeping over the condition of that city and ours. So what are we to do? What are we to do on this Palm Sunday? Are we to leave this space as if we just had this great emotional moment? We heard some things, we felt some things, said hi to some friends. Or should we press in in this moment and ask God, say, God, could you break my heart for what breaks yours? Could you break my heart for what breaks yours? I mean, let's be honest. It, it broke Jesus' heart so much that, that the only way to, for, for us as human beings to be right with God wasn't through our own effort. As a matter of fact, our own effort only made the problem worse. Instead, what Jesus had to do was what? He had to go to the cross. Because he wept over the city, but also Jesus knew what would come. Then just five days later, on Good Friday, him being wrung out on a rugged cross for sinners like you, for sinners like me, for the people who were shouting and had no idea why they were shouting, and for the people who were near enough to hear him weeping. I invite you to stand. I want to end with this. I'm just going to say this plainly. You've heard it in a bunch of different ways. I've tried to, I've prayed about this, but I've, I've also tried to help you see this in a bunch of different ways. But it's this. People who are emotionally charged without being spiritually changed will never experience true peace with God, peace within themselves, or peace with other people. So people who are emotionally charged without being spiritually changed. They'll never experience true peace. The peace that comes from God. A peace that is felt so deeply within ourselves where we're at peace with ourselves. 
and a peace that's so profound that then we can actually have better relationships because we're at peace with people because instead we, we don't see them as enemies. Maybe we weep over their lostness. We're burdened for their, their emotional state. We're burdened for their spiritual state. We're burdened for their families. Church, who is it this morning that God has, has put in your mind that is what you believe to be a lost person and that God has put that person in your mind right now? Talking about praying over and how Jesus wept over the city and talking about our city and the people of the city. Who is it that God is breaking your heart for in this moment? I invite you right where you are, stop and pray for that person. And pray and ask God to give you the words to say after this space for you to go to share the love of Jesus with them. But if, if, if God has put a name in your mind, stop right now and pray and ask God for the courage an opportunity to share the loving message of the gospel with them. Maybe for you, you're a person where you you don't have a sense of peace right now and you don't have peace with God. You don't have maybe peace within yourself and maybe you don't have peace with other people. Maybe this is an opportunity for you to pray where you're seated or maybe this is an opportunity for you to come up front and just confess that and say, God, I, I don't have peace with you and I know it's my fault. During the altar ministry, there are people who would love to pray with you and counsel you and help you. No one's here to judge you. There's no one here throwing stones. There's no one qualified to throw stones. So what is God moving you to do? Is it to pray where you're seated? Is it to come forward? Maybe in this moment, you have not even given your life to Jesus. And I talk about the cross, and maybe you know it as just some sort of uh, significant thing from history, but now maybe in this moment where you're starting to feel the weight of that and realize that Jesus died for you. He died for you so you could be right with the Father. And your response, and your only response, is confessing that you're a sinner and repenting, turning away from your old life and turning towards Jesus. Don't leave without allowing God to to move beyond this emotional state into what it is that He wants to do to bring spiritual movement in your heart. So as we finish today with singing, if there's business you need to do with God in your seats, continue to do it. If there's business you need to do at the front, come and do it. Just don't leave until you do the thing that God is whispering in your ear for you to do.